0: Good morning, friends. It's good to be on your screens today. Please do keep your Bibles open at Colossians 1 and make sure you've got it in front of you. And um, Let's begin by praying and asking that God might be at work in us through his Spirit this morning. Gracious God, we thank you for such a precious word. We thank you for the word of the truth, the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray that as we hear and think over your word in the next few minutes... It would help us to behold Jesus, our redeeming King, and be thankful for the hope that we have through him. In his name, amen. Well, do you know the fundamentals? This was a question that was asked of me and one of my hockey teams a couple of years ago by our brand new coach, none other than Brent Livermore. He was a gold medal winning Olympian, and he played over 300 games for Australia. So he was a player that we all looked up to and respected. And similarly, we were were really excited to learn miraculous and spectacular things from him. And so, eager to do so, in response to his question, we said, yeah, yeah, we know the fundamentals. So we were put to the test. And long story short, we spent the next three weeks hitting and trapping the ball for two hours every Tuesday night, Wednesday morning, Thursday night and Friday morning. That was it. Back and forth for two hours, four days a week, for three weeks. The point of this painfully boring exercise was to remind us not to get carried away and distracted by fancy tricks and plays, but to instead focus in on the fundamentals. I see the passage and the letter before us today setting a very similar task to believers of Christ both then and now. It's a bit of a check, a reset button, a going back to basics. And so today, whilst there's so much that we could say about these verses, we'll be focusing in on just a few fundamentals. But this letter was written by the Apostle Paul to a church in the town of Colossae. And they were a church that is not too dissimilar to our church. They were a group of relatively new believers who had heard and received the gospel. They met together in a small, largely insignificant town that gets bypassed by major highways. And they were a church that Paul had never visited but also, like us, this church found itself planted in a world that challenged the supremacy and sufficiency of the person and work of Jesus Christ. It appears that a man named Epaphras had written to Paul concerning numerous false teachers and gospels that were tempting the church to believe they needed something in addition to the gospel, that it was Christ plus a whole heap of other things like rites and rituals and practices and the gaining of higher knowledge to reach a higher level of spirituality. And this was, in the eyes of Paul, a very serious problem. Because whilst many of these false teachers did not outright deny Christ, they absolutely dethroned him and robbed him of his rightful place, seated at the right hand of God. And this is all still true of our world today. We are surrounded by so many beliefs and temptations, big or small, that draw us away from Jesus, that make us question the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ. And as Christ is diminished in our hearts and minds by anything but the truth of who he actually is, it is all too easy to fall into thinking that Christ is not enough for us. And that is why I want to suggest that we're coming to a passage this morning that is extremely helpful for us. Because Paul combats this issue and these false teachings head on, by encouraging the Colossians to remain stable and steadfast in Jesus Christ, the preeminent Son of God, who has brought forgiveness and redemption to the world. Paul is setting the record straight for the Colossians in this opening part of the letter. And it is to be no different for us. If we get that Jesus is who our passage today says he is, we don't need to worry about whether he's going to be enough for us. To help us grasp what Paul gets at in this letter we'll be looking at four who's. Firstly, who Paul says he is. Secondly, who Paul says we are. Thirdly, who Paul prays that we will be. And lastly, who Christ is. So let's have a look at this first one. Who is Paul? Verse 1 and and 2 tell us that this is a letter from Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother. Paul is an apostle of Christ Jesus. It means that he writes as one who has been sent by Christ himself. Paul's conversion and commissioning, which we read about in Acts chapter 9, means that he speaks with great authority. By using this title, Paul separates himself from being yet another thinker or teacher of the time. But notice that Paul indicates that he is an apostle by the will of God. The topic of God's will is a recurring theme in this letter, and Paul's understanding of it is that it is centred on how all things were created through Christ and for Christ, and how Jesus reconciles man and God by bringing peace by the blood of his cross. In other words, God's will is his desire for all of creation to be reconciled and devoted to Christ. And it is for this will that Paul was made an apostle of Christ Jesus, and it is by this will that Paul writes this very letter. The Colossians had learned of the gospel, the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection, from a faithful minister named Epaphras, as we read in verse 7. But now they have received a word from the Apostle Paul. It would have been really exciting, and I think we too should be on the edge of our seats as we look to see what Christ's representative has to say to us. A posture towards Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, very much reflects our posture towards Christ himself. And so with this authority in mind, let's have a look at who Paul says we are. Paul goes on in verse 3, writing to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae to say that we always thank God the Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. The first thing Paul reminds the Colossians of is that they are saints and faithful brothers in Christ, defined by faith, love, and hope. I started a new job at the beginning of this year, and shortly after we went to working from home, um, as many of you now are as well, but such a short time in the office meant that I actually didn't get to meet many people that I worked with. And as I've been slowly meeting people online over these last couple of months, I've gotten the very common pleasantry of, oh, hey Paul, uh, I've heard so much about you. Which only leads you to think, oh no, what have they heard about me? Thankfully it's all been pretty positive, but wouldn't it be wonderful to have it said about you, what Paul writes here of the Colossians, that you are known for your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for others. Paul deems these fruits of faith and love to be remarkable qualities, worthy of heavenly thanks to our Father in heaven. Faith and love are things that we should all be striving for, from this hope that is laid up for us in heaven. And the hope that Paul refers to is, of course, the hope of the gospel, the word of truth, and this is the second thing that Paul says about who we are as followers of Christ. We are believers of the truth. Have a look at verse 5 to 8 with me. Paul says that they have heard of this hope before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. This hope that is to result in faith and love is made known to us by the gospel. The gospel is the word of truth, and this word of truth is spreading and bearing fruit not just in Colossae, but to the whole world. And it is the truth about how we have been redeemed and forgiven by the crucifixion of Christ and how we now have eternal life with God, reserved for us in heaven, all assured by Jesus' resurrection from the dead. This reality can only be understood by Paul, as Paul describes, as the grace of God in truth. I wonder if, like me, you've found um, all these COVID lockdowns and the monotony and even just more broadly the struggles and suffering of life at this time, um, if you've found it easy to let your faith be determined by your feeling or your mood towards that. I've been really challenged by what Paul says to the Colossians here because it reminds me that we don't follow Christ merely because it makes us feel good or that because it works for us. We follow Christ because the gospel is true if we were to reverse that order of thinking for a moment and imagine that the truth is determined by what makes us feel good or what works for us, then uh, everyone would be able to create their own truth. For instance, a dear friend of mine um, who was raised in Peru tells me often about this particular psychedelic plant deep in the Peruvian wilderness that people have sought out for generations to open up their third eye to the world and let their inner being or God out. As many people find this experience to be most existentially compelling and exciting, then we would be forced to conclude that such a way of seeing the world is the truth. But if we accept the premise that truth is determined by what makes us feel good and spiritual, then we will find ourselves always chasing the next great wonderful thing that comes along, of which there are many. And this is exactly why Paul is reminding the Colossians of who they are as believers of the truth. Paul says, don't be sucked into thinking and and following whatever the next great wonderful thing is that is tugging for your attention. Do not shift from the hope of the gospel. You are a believer of the gospel, the word of the truth, revealing the grace of God and an eternal hope that cannot be taken, that gives power to faith and love. And it is Jesus, around whom the gospel is centred, who we should be leaning our whole weight upon in faith and devoting our all to in love. Paul then goes on after having given thanks to God for the Colossians, faith, love and hope, by letting them in on his prayer life, bringing us to our third point today, who Paul prays that we will be. Verse 9. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you would be filled with the knowledge of his will In all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him. Paul prays that we would be filled with the knowledge of God's will. And he starts this prayer by saying, and so, which essentially means, given that all that I've said above is true, that you have come to faith and you believe in the truth, I'm praying that you would understand God's will for you to be reconciled to Christ. So that instead of walking in these earthly and evil things in which you once walked, you would instead walk in him. And Paul says that he has not stopped praying that these believers would be so mindful and convicted of Christ's death and resurrection. That they would do nothing but glorify him in their lives by becoming more like him. Paul doesn't just pray that we would know God's will, but that we would be filled with it and understand it with wisdom that comes from the Holy Spirit so that they might apply it into action by walking. The way I like to think of it is if someone were to walk into your house right now and inform you that there's a fire next door. If you were smart, having heard the the message, you would comprehend what it means for you and your safety and you'd stop listening to me immediately and you'd get up taking action and walk out of your house or run out of your house. This metaphor for walking is another recurring theme within the letter and it is used to describe the action of living out a particular understanding. Chapter 3, verse 7, for example, outlines how the Colossians once lived in things like sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire and covetedness by saying that in these things you too once walked when you were living in them. Like us, the Colossians' way of looking at the world has been completely flipped upside down after having received the gospel. And so he prays desperately that we would be so filled with it that nothing else could be poured in, that there would be no room left for anything else to distract us from pleasing the Lord in every way. Our walk with Christ is driven by our dependence on God's grace in Christ and characterized by our intentional devotion to God's will by obediently walking in him. But what does this look like? In what, in what manner or ways are we to walk? Well, Paul points out four of these for us. Let's have a look from verse 10. The first way Paul prays that we would walk is by bearing fruit in every good work. Bearing fruit is the metaphor that's used throughout the New Testament. that represents the practice of Christ-like and godly behaviour and character. Paul outlines a couple of these in chapter 3, verse 12, such as compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience and love. Paul's prayer is that we, as we fill ourselves with the knowledge of God's will, we would emulate Christ to others by our conduct in all circumstances. The second way of walking involves increasing in or by the knowledge of God. The principle is that as we are filled with the knowledge of God's will, we will come to bear fruit. But we do not stop growing. We also increase to yield more fruit. My brother, as many of you would know, has just had a baby. And at the moment, little Roger doesn't do much. He sleeps, he cries, he eats, he looks cute, and he poops. It would be most unreasonable if his parents birthed him and then expected him to go to work, pay the bills, and function as a fully grown adult. That's just not what we do. And I think it's awesome that God deals with us similarly. He allows us to grow. We're not limited or restrained from bearing fruit until we fully understand God. That would be impossible. We're not expected to be perfect straight out of the box. But rather, Paul's idea is that the Christian can continue to grow in the knowledge of God's will and abide as they abide in his word, bearing fruit in every good work along the way. The third way Paul prays that we would walk is, verse 11, by being strengthened according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. It's almost a little bit anticlimactic, isn't it? Imagine the things that you could do with God's glorious power and might. You could do anything. But all that Paul says we will be able to do is to endure and be patient with joy. This, I imagine, however, is something that we would all benefit from having prayed for us at the moment. This lockdown is certainly testing our endurance and our patience, and let alone that it be done with joy. But Paul is so convinced that if we are so filled with the knowledge of his, of his son and the hope of the gospel, that we will be abiding in a God who can and does bring about the strength to endure and be patient with joy. Are you mindful of the hope you have in Jesus? Are you consistently reminding yourself of the everlasting hope that's been laid up for you in heaven? Are you seeking out ways to be filled with the hope of the gospel? Personally for me this involves imagining what heaven will be like by what is said about it in scripture, by imagining what a joyful and awesome thing it will be to be in God's presence again. But what will help me to do this better and better as I grow is by diligently committing to prayer and Bible reading, all of this seeking to know God better, with my mind set on things above, where Christ is. And whilst we will never perfectly fill ourselves with the knowledge of God's will, God will use whatever amount we faithfully pour in to bear fruit, to grow us and to strengthen us. And the fourth way in which we are to walk is, verse 12, by giving thanks to God. But why? Well, it is because of what he has done for us through his beloved son, Jesus Christ. Your Heavenly Father, verse 12, has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. I really encourage everyone to memorise today's passage. It it will be so useful in helping you to be more thankful and prayerful for things that matter, like Paul is. And it will also help us to have a deeply profound description of Christ as we're about to come to. But I would say, if that's too much, start with verses 13 and 14, because it is this simple truth that Paul wants us to walk in. As I've been mumbling it to myself over the past month, trying to memorise it, I've found just seven truths that I'd like to share with you, which I think will come up on the screen as well. One, you've got a father in heaven. Two, there's a heavenly inheritance you have a share in. Three, you're not in the dark anymore. Four, there's a heavenly kingdom that you now belong to. Five, that kingdom belongs to Christ. Six, you've got redemption because of Jesus. And seven, you've got forgiveness because of Jesus. Finally, we get to the last of the who's, who Christ is. The reason why Paul is so thankful for the Colossians and can pray so confidently for the things he does is because he is totally aware of the supremacy and sufficiency or the preeminence of Christ over all things. This beautiful statement is arranged in two sections with a small transition in the middle, Verses 15 and 16 proclaim Christ as creator, and verses 18 and 20 proclaim Christ as redeemer, linked by Christ being the head of the body of the church in the middle. And the most common question that gets asked regarding these verses is, is your view of Jesus as big as this? But I think the more appropriate and pointed question to ask is, is the Jesus you devote your life to this Jesus? Are you and Paul talking about the same Jesus? Firstly, let's have a look at Christ the Creator. Verse 15, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. The first claim is that Christ is the image of God. This term affirms the belief that God, who is invisible, sent his son into the world to bear his likeness perfectly. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 says that he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. But image also indicates a physical manifestation that God's being and nature has been so perfectly incarnate, made perfectly incarnate in Christ as a man, that in him the invisible has become visible. Jesus himself in the Gospel of John says that whoever believes and sees him believes and sees the one who sent him. The point is very simple. If you see Jesus, you see God. But we read as well that Christ is also the firstborn of all creation. This term does not mean that he was the first to be created or born, but rather that he is the first and foremost in the line of God's inheritance. He is before everything else in the pecking order. It's a term of rank and authority, denoting Jesus' right to rule creation. All things in creation are his by right because, verse 16, says that all things were created by him. And if he created all things, then he's not created And Paul makes it very clear that nothing is left out in heaven and on earth. That's everything. Visible or invisible, that's everything. All things means all things. No throne or dominion or ruler or authority is excluded either. Christ holds supreme authority over all power everywhere. Everything is under Christ's authority and will one day have to submit to Christ because all things were created through him and for him. And so, if Christ made all things, and all things are for Christ, that includes you and me. We're not just made by Him, we were made for Him. What this means is that you cannot ultimately have a meaningful purpose in life that is not based on Christ. You were made for Him. Paul summarizes the idea of Christ as Creator in verse 17 by saying, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. This affirms Christ's authorship and authority over creation. But Paul's not finished because Christ also has authorship and authority over the new creation, where man is reconciled to God in peace. Paul joins these two realities of Christ as creator and redeemer by proclaiming him as the head of the body, the church. By this he means that Christ is the initiator of the new creation, he is the head from which the rest of the body will follow. He is the breaking into this world that draws us into the next. A, a helpful way of thinking about this is like the bursting of a dam wall. It starts off with a tiny crack and a small trickle of water begins to drip through. As the water pushes from behind, the pressure becomes too great and all of a sudden the dam walls burst and the water breaks through to the other side. It's as if that first little bit of water is pulling behind at the rest through that tiny little crack. And so it is with the resurrection of Jesus. Christ is the head of the body, the church, is the one who broke the damn wall for us, that we might follow behind in faith. But until that day when Jesus returns in glory, we are to be Christ's body here on earth. It makes sense then that as the body, we walk in the direction the head is pointed, as living testimonies of God's grace. Paul elaborates in the next section on Christ's headship by, fundament, by fundamentally tying it to Christ's resurrection. It is the cross that makes reconciliation and peace with God possible. He writes, He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Jesus. All his divine power and authority was made manifest in Jesus, so that in all that all things might be reconciled to Christ, enabling peace with God. And it's this idea of peace that is for me the most remarkable. Why would God send his son in flesh to dwell among us, be tortured, scorned and crucified at the hands of people like you and me in order that we might have peace with him? It's baffling. Even more so because of what Paul then says about who the Colossians once were in verse 21, which is of course true of all of us. He writes, And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. There we once were, alienated, hostile toward God, doing evil deeds. And here we now are, reconciled in peace with God. Peace not just being the absence of judgment, but rather the invitation and the presence of love. Christ's death and resurrection put us in a state in which Christ can present us before God as holy and blameless and above reproach. Without Christ, we are sinful, guilty and condemned. And yet it pleased God that in Christ's body of flesh in which the fullness of God dwelled, that he bore our sin, he took our guilt and he suffered our condemnation. Paul closes this opening part of the letter by reminding us that the hope of peace and reconciliation with God in glory is assured if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which he, Paul, became a minister. This is why Paul um, has spent the opening part of this letter reminding them of who he is who they are, who they are to be, and who Christ is. It is written to encourage the Colossians and us to remain stable and steadfast in our faith in Jesus, not to shift from the hope of the gospel that you've heard. If you're struggling with your devotion to Jesus at the moment, if you're being distracted or tempted to believe that Jesus is not enough for you, or if you're not a Christian and your hope is elsewhere, I really encourage you to dig deeper into what Paul says About Jesus here, because he is enough. He was enough for Paul to change his ways of persecuting Christians and to become a minister of the gospel and an apostle of Christ. And it is the same gospel for you and I, the word of truth, spreading the hope of glory to the world, which is powerful enough to bear fruit in you, to grow you, to strengthen you and to reconcile you to God. I actually can't summarise it much better than what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, where he says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. We were once in the dark, and now we are not, because of Christ and Christ alone. Let's give thanks to God for that. Father, we thank you because you have delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of your beloved Son. We thank you for who he is as the preeminent creator and redeemer of all over all creation. And we ask that you would help us to remain more stable in our faith and more steadfast in our walk in him from this day forth. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, there'll be a time, uh, 90 seconds, I believe, of uh, quiet reflection just for you to have a think, have a pray, and also uh, there's the opportunity to ask a question as well um, using Slido with the, I believe it's a hashtag, HBSP. So... Um, yeah we'll be back after to answer that question those questions thanks, thanks. We're actually going to answer the questions in our chat after church time. So right now we're going to sing. We're going to sing in Christ alone.